All right, welcome to episode 553. We are going to have a Poplin Carpet Roundtable. With us, we have Nick Mutton. He is, everybody knows who Nick is that's into carpets. He's from Inland Reptiles and the author of The More Complete Carpet Python. We have Riley Jimison from Riley's Reptiles and Ben Nicholson's from Nicholson Herpticulture. We're going full nerd on this episode, so get ready. <laughs> um, uh, I would like to let everybody know that we share pics throughout the, the episode. So if you want to check that part out, you want to see that part, we share the video over on Patreon. So if you're interested, go check that out. The links are down below. But for people that may be their first time tuning in, let's uh, let's go around. So we're going to always go when we're answering questions or topics. So we'll go Nick, Riley, Ben, me. I'll, I'll ask the question and then you can go. Um, so... Uh, we'll just start by saying a uh, brief introduction of yourself and what got you and what do you love about Poplin Carpet Pythons? Start with you, Nick. Uh, they were, I guess, the second carpet python I ever got, but I was just getting into the hobby around the time the first ones were being imported. So that was kind of the hot new thing uh, for a minute there. And so I kind of got swept up in that very early on. Uh, even got my first, you know, wild caught giant wild caught adults way back in the mid 90s myself so it was just kind of there right as it as it was uh coming about and just kind of rode the wave the rest of the time this last 30 years okay cool what about you riley i think you're muted oh yep there we go um pop ones yeah pop ones i found after i kind of started dabbling with like uh jungles and coastals a little bit and then found npr and your enthusiasm for them totally cued my interest and i uh linked up with dan maleri started grabbing a bunch of his imports and going down that rabbit hole and you know a few dozen of those later i've yeah i've definitely found uh, a fondness for them and they are uh, a large staple of the population of animals I work with today. Cool. What about you, Ben? So I started with jungles way back when, uh, and found poplins along the way. Always appreciated them. Um, and then yeah, I got out of it for a long, long time and then came back into it and all the jungles were amazing. And I was amazed that there wasn't as much refinement with the poplins. So I'm uh, super excited about the possibilities with them. And uh, they're not saying there hasn't been some refinement, mm -hmm. but like in general, uh, you know, every single jungle is a slammer. And uh, <laughs> there's a lot of, a lot of different ways you could take poplins and it just doesn't seem to be going there yet. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, they were really my first like real big carpet purchase. I've been banging that drum since 2011 on NPR. I'm glad Riley listened. <laughs> that was good. Um, and uh, I think that they there's so much uh, potential there that's uh, untapped. You know, I guess Nick's influence on me as well is sort of, you know, jungles have been yellowed and black to death. You know, you need uh -huh. to go a different direction if you can sort of, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, I guess work uh some of the projects like you know poplin carpets or you know even inlands or something like that that you could probably you know really 
make some really killer, killer stuff. You know, there's so many directions too with poplins, which we'll get into, you know, but okay. Yeah. There, there's so many colors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, well, I guess, well, we'll just, we'll just be quiet while Nick talks this whole part, but <laughs> um, <laughs> no pressure <laughs> when it comes to taxes. So we always have this question, everybody, you know, uh, it's kind of a joke and everybody kind of jokes around. It's all in good fun, but you know, it's like, what do we call them? Uh, you know, so they used to be called IJs. You're in Jaya carpet pythons forever. Then they sort of became West Poplin carpets. Some people call them Poplin carpets. I think that there was some people debating because it's confusing with the Poplin Python and blah, blah, blah. So um, there's been taxonomy change as well. So I don't know. What do we call them, Nick? <laughs> Poplin carpet pythons. <laughs> okay, easy done. You know, All right, um, next question. <laughs> I don't want to seem like a – I realize I look like a curmudgeonly old man now, but and perhaps I am. But if you can't tell the difference between a Poplin carpet python and a Poplin python – I can't help you. Like, there, Amen. No, if you can't tell those two, if you can conflate and confuse those two things, then you should probably, I don't know, get into something else and not into pythons. Cause that's, that's kind of an absurd thing. Um, so yeah, Poplin carpets, the original moniker of Erie and Jaya carpets was actually wrong before it ever. I mean, basically what happened with that is, these animals came in from the area formerly known as Irian Jaya that was already no longer Irian Jaya when the first snakes came in. So by the time the first animals landed, that was already not a place that even existed. There was never a right name, but like a lot of things in herpeticulture and even in science more generally, bad nomenclature sometimes sticks and people are very reluctant to let it go. But that's a place that is the former name of a province of Indonesia that has not existed in decades. Um, if you can find a modern map that shows me where Arian Jaya is, then I guess you can call them that, but you can't do that. Um, the entire island, both sides of it, snakes don't recognize political boundaries and imaginary lines that people draw on maps when they steal half of an island in the 1950s. Uh, as is Indonesia, I'm looking at you. Um, the snakes are on both sides of that the political boundary. They don't understand the difference between those two things. The whole island is called Papua. The people on both sides are called Papuans. It is a Papuan carpet python. Uh, so that's a name that will always be correct. They can change the name of that province as many times as they want. Papuan carpets still will hold up. So that's why I go with that. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. What about taxonomy wise? Where do they, where do they, where do they fall? Um, this is one of those, we live in a time where everybody wants a neat, concise, clear, super brief, you know, short attention span sort of answer. And this is actually vastly more complicated than that. Um, they are in the variegata complex, but what we call variegata has three different populations that can vary a fair bit from each other and both phenotypically and genetically. Um, the closest relative of Poplin carpets, unsurprisingly, are the carpets on the Cape York Peninsula of Australia, but those uh, and also are allied with the ones in the top end that we call Darwin carpets. If you look at them phylogenetically, um, you'll find there's virtually no difference between a Cape York carpet and a New Guinea carpet, regardless of what they look like. And defining Cape York carpet is basically from gelatin, including gelatin, north all the way to the tip of the Cape and including New Guinea. It's one, basically one unit genetically. 
So as much as I love my gelatin carpets, you know, so I didn't call them gelatin jungles anymore. Uh, and I know you love yours too. I do. <laughs> there is virtually no daylight genetically between those weird black and white gray gelatin jungle jungles and a poplin carpet. They are genetically the same thing. And the reason for that is pretty clear. Um, that is, you could walk from the tip of the Cape York Peninsula, Australia to New Guinea six or 7,000 years ago without getting your feet wet. And there's islands in between that area. And there's, there are carpets on those islands as well. So they have not been separated long enough to have, for any genetic drift to have occurred or for any of them to sort of wandered off on any sort of a genetic tangent. It just hasn't been long enough uh, for that to have occurred. That's not quite the case with the third population in the top end, what are, you know, the hobby refers to as Darwin carpets. Those are genetically a little bit different, but not different enough to warrant a separate taxonomic designation. If you look at the map that you've got pulled up now that shows that is uh, the continent of Sahul, which is uh, basically greater Australia. What people fail, most people in the hobby and in the world probably don't really realize is that New Guinea is not really an island above Australia. It is part of Australia. And the low-lying areas in the middle are periodically inundated with water during uh, times of uh, interglacial, warmer, wetter interglacial periods. Throughout most of the last two and a half million years, this is what it looked like. A relative minority of the time is what it looks like now in times of higher sea level that cuts these two populations off. So this is basically the norm. And as you can see, uh, when I did that map, I even corrected it for vegetation patterns uh, based on some research and stuff and soil sediment cores and whatnot. And so the area in between that's now underwater between Southern New Guinea and Northern Australia was almost entirely dominated by eucalyptus savanna which is the prime habitat for carpet pythons. So it would have had a very, very hospitable submerged bit of climate or uh, habitat rather that connected those two land masses. If you look to the west side where you see where Aru is right under the, little, under the base of the Bird's Head Peninsula there, uh, and you'll see a little indentation. And then to the east of that, to the right, you'll see a freshwater lake or a brackish lake. That is Lake Carpentaria, which at high sea, at times of Low sea level is a brackish lake, and in times of high sea level now, it's the Gulf of Carpentaria. It's inundated with seawater. Um, at this time, um, basically, I'm trying to really, it's just a lot of complicated stuff. I'm trying to boil this down into a, distill it down into something people can understand, I guess, easily yes. enough. But as sea level rises up, as glacial ice sheets in the northern hemisphere into a lesser extent southern hemisphere, as those retreat and that water melts, and dilutes ocean water, sea level comes up. Uh, the difference between this map and at present is about you know, 400 feet. Sea level's 400 feet lower at this point, just 20,000 years ago. Uh, as the sea level comes up, as those glaciers retreat, this is a process that takes thousands of years, the seawater, the marine inundation that cuts off New Guinea from the rest of Australia starts in the west, where Aru is and all that. So the Aru Islands are the first bit of that conjoined landmass of Sahul that gets separated. Um, and then it keeps creeping in because that area is very low lying. It creeps in until eventually ocean water floods in and floods the Carpentaria Basin. Lake Carpentaria becomes the Gulf of Carpentaria. And that mostly severs New Guinea from Australia. That happens. It takes a considerable amount of you know greater time for uh, it to completely sever the connection between Cape York and the southernmost bit of New Guinea. Uh, so that what happens is the carpet pythons in the top end, the Darwin carpets, 
while this is all one contiguous population, presumably, that's interbreeding and exchanging genes, they're the first to get cut off. They get cut off much earlier with the marine inundation of the Carpentaria Basin, but connectivity and gene flow persists between New Guinea and Cape York for a much longer time period before it's finally severed. And this is why, and this is reflected when you look at their genes, you see that all of these things are pretty closely related, or very closely related, but you can see that there's a little bit more distinction between the Northern Territory stuff, the IE Darwin carpets, because they've been separated for longer, and that is shown, that shows in their genes. And curiously, it shows not just in their genes, it shows in the genes of a lot of things. If you look at the water pythons of New Guinea, Queensland, and Northern Territory, what you'll find is a huge difference genetically between the Northern Territory and the Queensland water pythons. They all look the same, but they're vastly different genetically, and there's no difference between the New Guinea and the Queensland ones. That's the same snake, but the Northern Territory ones are different, just as we see in the carpet pythons. Uh, if you look at the frilled dragons uh, that show the same situation, Northern Territory is different. Queensland and New Guinea are the same. So you see the same, this same pattern, biogeographical pattern, and other things that share this same three-way distribution pattern. So hopefully that made some sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <clears throat> is it crazy to think, I know, you know, say... 50,000 years from now, if the world is still around, would Papuan carpets be on their own tra trajectory to sort of branch off and become their own species? Is that crazy um, to think that way or? In a, it, no, but if thing, if you take, if you could factor, magically factor human activity out and the effects that we have on climate and sure. warming the planet up, basically if you, Again, I get such so nerdy and it gets down in the weeds and I don't want to lose people, but uh, the cycle of ice ages and interglacials never ended. We think the ice age, the ice age is not over. We are still in that. We are just in a warm, wet interglacial period. We are at about at the point where, you know, in, you know, another handful of thousands of years, the climate should start tipping back into another glaciation, in which case we return to this map and all those thin populations will be allowed to come back together and trade genes again. Mm, okay. However that we have likely broke as humans have likely broken that cycle. The natural cycle of ice ages and interglacial is governed by something called the Milankovitch cycle, which is really complicated. It has a lot to do with the processional rotation of the Earth's axis and the elliptical orbit of the Earth around the sun and how when those things sync up, it creates these longer-term cycles of climate. Uh, mm -hmm. But we are affecting that at a much higher rate than any natural uh, sort of uh, phenomenon. I mean, the difference between a glacial and interglacial, between having glaciers in the northern hemisphere and low sea levels and where we're at now is literally only about two degrees. That's it. It's a difference of about two degrees. Wow. That's the difference. It's, so you're not talking about massive swings in temperature. It gets more exaggerated when you get closer to the poles. Uh, at the equator, animals would barely notice. But it doesn't take much to tip you one way or the other. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Yeah. I warned him we were going full nerd. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I like learning that kind of stuff, but okay. So does, do you guys, what do you call them, Riley? You call them popping carpets, right? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> when I came into it, I was, I was taught IJs and it rolled off the tongue, but very quickly uh, learned, uh, pop wind carpet was probably a little bit more of a, an accurate terminology. And so ever since I figured that out, I, that's just where I've stuck. Yeah. You too, Ben. You're muted too. <laughs> I've always, yeah. I've always called them pop wind carpets. Um, okay. Yeah. 
right, cool. Um, all right, I, you know, I don't know. What do you guys think as far as like, you know, does a common name even matter? Does that even matter? Is that important? It kind of, you know, I don't know. What do you think, Nick? Well, I'm a grumpy old man, so I think it matters, but <laughs> I'm with I, you. <laughs> I can't, I get a, not obsessed, but I get like, just, there's certain things that just bug me that people like seize on like outdated terminology and things that are just blatantly incorrect and they won't let it go. And it's, uh, you know, so whether it's, you know, pop wind carpets or versus IJs, this sort of thing. I mean, and there's historical examples of this. I mean, we're still stuck with the Antaresia perthensis for a species that was misidentified and doesn't occur anywhere near Perth, but nobody changed it. And so we're stuck with it. We're stuck with Python timorensis that doesn't occur on Timor right. at all. It's like, we're stuck with that. We're stuck with a huge classification of living dinosaurs, which are part of the theropoda, theropod dinosaurs, which are still alive in the form of every bird on the earth. And the name theropod is wrong. They just, they got it backwards. They mixed up, it means beast foot and one means bird foot and they got it backwards. <laughs> like, it's like, so we're, what we are calling like sauropod means a lizard foot actually has beast feet. And what we're calling, it's like, it's, but it's stuck And 150 years later, we're stuck with it forever. So it's, it's not too late to change these things. Right. My previous crusade was the quit using the word codom. That's not a thing. <laughs> I think not we broke that. Thing. I think, it's I think that's, thing. you think, it's, well, well, maybe in like the ball Python world, it's still a thing, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I don't. Maddening. It's like, it's like, thing. I can't take you seriously. If you're talking, if you use the word codom, that's not how, that's not how inheritance works. That is just one person's misunderstanding of something they read that is just stuck for decades, for 20 years now we're stuck with. I remember, uh, years ago I was talking to this guy I worked with. He went to this college for genetics how he ended up running a supermarket i have no idea but well, that's another topic anyway i'm explaining to him like co-dominant and he's like that's wrong it's incomplete dominant and i'm arguing with him like no man i know i'm telling you i listen to it on reptile radio it's it's co-dominant he's like oh no, yeah. that's not right <laughs> now if we could just abolish the term super it's uh, like <laughs> I have a, a fair number of an unusually high number of friends that are geneticists. And I know they must just die inside every time they hear that a little bit. Like yeah. it's a super, it's like, oh, no, no. Uh, herpticulture. Gotta love Other it. terms like, oh, it's a het trait. A het trait? What? Like, <laughs> what, are, what are you talking about? Like, uh, I, uh, I don't think it's too hard to insist on using the correct terminology. No, no. <laughs> What do you guys think, uh, Riley? Do you have any thoughts, Ben? Anything? Oh, I agree, man. I, I side with Nick on all of that stuff. Once I once I hear what is a correct term, I can't unhear that. And from that point on, if I hear the incorrect term, it, just a little part of me dies inside. Whether I you know, feel it's appropriate to say anything or not is a different story, but I hear it and I pay attention. And whether it's conscious or not, man, it just... You, when you're using correct terms like that, I can't help but look at you kind of like a little bit like dumbass. <laughs> and it, I, I'm, I, I don't mean to be so judgmental, but like, man, it just if you're if you're breeding animals and you're selling them, I feel like it's your duty to be as educated as possible. And this willful willful ignorance of like using incorrect terminology to run with the crowd is just 
It's silly. I'd also like to name and shame anybody that's ever referred to a Brendel's Python. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or Stimpson's Python with a P. Yeah. Um, I'm coming for you guys next. So. <laughs> nice. I don't know. Did you have any thoughts, Ben, that you wanted to add, or are you you're following with Riley and me? <laughs> well, I yeah, I mean, I'd say like uh, common names. It, it doesn't really matter what you call them, but it's confusing to people that are coming into the hobby and they're like, you know, what's an I? What difference between an IJ and a Poplin carpet? And you, and you have to explain they're the same thing. You know right. it. it Pop one is the correct term, but right, you know, people people are gonna say what they're gonna say, and you just gotta educate people and be nice. Well, I found <laughs> that like I found that I don't know. I I guess in the Morelia world, maybe NPR has a little bit of influence in like that's why I like to ask these questions that seem like why are they talking about names and blah blah, blah so that people can listen at the very beginning and have an understanding of like, you know, to Riley's point, if you're you know, uh, learning about them, you should know the right, the right names and stuff uh -huh. like that. And, you know, it's sometimes it's hard to find. I mean, there have been two books written about them and you know, <laughs> podcasts for 13 years and, you know, YouTube channel with Riley on there yelling at you every week about call, you know, Pablo and carpets and stuff. Um, so you got me yelling, Riley yelling, Nick yelling. What, what, what more do we got to do? Come on. <laughs> um, all right. So I thought, uh, for a husbandry topic, um, I thought it would be um, interesting to get your guys' thoughts on um, set, having wild carpets and establishing them since poplin carpets are really the only wild carpet that we can put our hands on. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about, you know, what you did, uh, some of the issues that you ran into or just experiences in general. Um, what, what do you got, Nick? Uh, I'll, uh, I was going to defer this to the other guys a bit and let them talk a bit since I don't want to totally monopolize okay. the conversation, but, uh, go ahead. you want them to go? Riley can go. Yeah, Riley, have, Riley can have this one. All right. Um, wild cots have been surprisingly easy to acclimate into my system of care. They're not difficult, uh, husbandry wise. I mean, they, I will say a lot of the times they do like to soak right off the bat when they come in. They do like that humidity and up here in Sacramento, it's a little drier. So I have to put in a little more effort running humidifiers and things, but, um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're usually pretty hardy. They're pretty friendly and tolerable in, in my opinion. Um, and they eat kind of right off the bat, whether you give them rats or birds, I, I really haven't had too much trouble with any, whether it be wild caught or farm hatched imports or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, they've been great, especially compared to, uh, you know, like captive, captive hatch ones. They're just little, little jerks. But, um, <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Those yeah, my, ones. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have wild caught animals that are just sweethearts and then everything that I hatch out just appears to, have a chainsaw and it's going to need somewhere. <laughs> so. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what's going on there. Okay. So do you run into, have you, um, you know, had any, had any of them that came in that you, they waited for feed or anything like that? I had one go a, a while. That's kind of why I'm asking that. Have you had any kind of situations um, with that? And did you just wait not, it out? No, 
Not really. I mean, I'd, I would never offer them right away. I'd kind of set them up and something, just let them be for a week or two and just not really mess with them other than change their water. And uh, if they didn't, you know, take frozen thawed right away, which most of them do in my experience, uh, I'd just toss a live in there overnight and it'd be gone. But um, yeah, I haven't really run into too many issues with them. Okay. Do you do anything different setup wise? Why they're, you know, um i mean when they first come in i definitely want to keep them really like clean and easy to observe just for quarantine purposes uh, mm-hmm. i haven't had any issues with external parasites or anything like that um haven't had any of those like subcutaneous uh parasites that you see in like chondros or anything so you know they come in pretty robust in my opinion i mean i don't just get them from like random jobbers or importers, but you know, I tend to go through people who I know have a solid reputation in what they're doing. So I'm sure, you know, doing that probably cuts out a lot of the hassle on my end, but yeah, I haven't really run into like, you know, ticks or mites or any, you know, crazy war wounds or anything like that on them. So. Yeah. I guess that does make a difference, right? Most of my stuff came from Dan Maleri. Yeah. And you know, yeah he's he's doing a good job at you know cleaning them up if you will getting them getting them going and, and whatnot so okay yeah how about you ben have you had an experience with uh wild animals yet no i haven't gotten any wild cots uh gotten most of my stuff from nick actually so oh there you go <laughs> perfect <laughs> cool <laughs> one thing that's worth mentioning is uh the description of how your your wild cots have done that's not always been the case at all there's 30 years ago 25 30 years ago when the first ones came in i was i got quite a number of wild ones and the importation process and how those animals are handled and their ordeal in getting from new guinea to get here is pretty different now and it's all for the better so animals wild cots now do a lot better um, the ones back in the oh, early yeah. were horrible snakes. They were they weren't really aggressive so much. That's a wild caught female from uh, the early 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 days. Um, and that snake came in at a solid five and a half six feet and never ate a rat its entire life. Um, fed it entirely nothing but hamsters and chickens. Really? Uh, wow. Yeah. Okay. It laid thirty three eggs at one point. I mean, I got, I got a pair of huge wildcats that I, I got them to breed, but uh, very early on in the 90s. But they were, a lot of the wildcats, they'd be super shy, not really aggressive, but they would be really hard to get feeding and just, they'd stress really easily. They'd come in really dehydrated. They would have all manner, I've seen all manner of parasites. You'd have to worm them and they would crap out like live worms would come out. And it's, like, it's, a, it's a lot better now. <laughs> like, okay. A lot better now. Uh, they, I think the process of importation is a, they take a bit more care to do, you know, uh, with the animals themselves. And then you get guys like Dan that get them and kind of fix them up and you don't see nearly as much, uh, you know, losses in terms of wild caught stuff as you used to. So and that's all a good thing. Okay. What was, uh, what was, talk to us, Nick, about like what it was like when they first came in back then, like, was it like were people like trying to get them? Did they care about them? Did nobody care about oh, yeah. them? Oh yeah. yeah, no, they were they were they were pretty they were fairly expensive for the time. I mean, I remember uh, VPI back in the day was one of the first. They might have been the first person people to breed them, and so if not the first, they were among the very first to breed them. And 
they were like $800 snakes, but that's $819.95. That's a lot. You know, that's, that was a, you know, um, it was one of the last really new pythons to kind of come into the hobby. And so there was a, but it, it, uh, sort of fizzled relatively quickly. It was like there was big demand initially, but it didn't last for a sustained period. They lay a fair number of eggs. They're not very hard to breed, especially when you get your F1s. You know, they breed fairly readily and everything. So the price came down on them fairly early on. And then people went right back to worrying about yellow jungle carpets again, mostly. And so they've, <laughs> they've kind of been on everybody's back burner for three decades. Yeah. Um, and while you see some work with selective breeding it's usually just one or two people and it usually doesn't last for i mean speaking only for myself as someone who's selectively bred things for you know some lines for almost 30 years just as an individual to get somewhere it you need to have a singular focus and it's going to take a while and it seems like everybody's attention span in the hobby now is on mutants and morphs which are basically shortcuts because we don't want to take five generations to selectively breed something cool we want instant gratification and so the idea, the very nature of selective breeding, it's just a longer process and people do not have the patience for it nearly as much as they used to. Uh, they're spoiled. Why would I want to, why would I want to selectively breed for a lighter, brighter one? And I'll just get a hypo or something like that. And I'll just get everything I want without having to put in the work that selective breeding project, uh, you know, over a longer term will take. But personally, I think that's the most rewarding thing is when you can look at you produce some exceptional animal and you can look back and it's like, I produced that animal. I produced that animal's parents. It's grandparents. It's great grandparents. It's great, great, great grandparents. And you can see all that progression over time. That to me is the most rewarding thing, I guess, when you can look back at, you know, multi-generation projects and you put the sweat and the hard work and the time in to get there. And that's, that's more rewarding to me anyway. I agree. And if you're sort of like looking sort of what I was saying earlier, if you're looking to sort of, you know, make a name for yourself, if you will, I guess, in the, in the carpet python world, you know, it, it's kind of hard to do that with jungle since everybody's done that. But here's like, you know, a, a palette for the taking. You just got to put in the work. And I think the thing with selective breeding has always been that you kind of are at the front of that, you know, whatever the project you, you know, you're working with, whether it's banded animals, striped animals, high yellow, high, you know, uh, black animals, wh whatever it would be, you're sort of uh, shaping your own destiny, if you will, I guess you would, would say, but um, okay. <clears throat> I know earlier we talked about the, the whole water bowl thing. <laughs> what do you guys think that is? What is it with pop one carpets and Wanting to soak in their water bowls. I don't know. Ben, do you experience that with yours? Actually, I haven't. Uh, when I had Damn them it. before, <laughs> back back in the day, I, I had three or four that would do it all the time. <clears throat> but the group that I have now, none of them do it. Yeah. So I'm not really sure. I'm keeping them the same way. Yeah. I'm not really sure what the difference is. Um, I, I, get, I mean, we get into a little bit of, there's been basically no field work done in Southern New Guinea. Mm -hmm. uh, with carpet pythons per se. So whatever you find, any natural history information, it's usually somebody that was studying some other thing and then observed this other thing as kind of a, an aside, not a lot of direct research. Uh, but, you know, without, with a little bit of hesitation and getting into a bit of idle speculation, it is, in my opinion, quite likely 
the habitat that they live in is not, they do not live in a closed canopy rainforest environment. They live in a eucalypt savanna that looks like top end of Australia, unsurprisingly. And where you find them is in the savanna and in the transition zone to the rainforest, but not in the rainforest. Um, and that area, that savanna is much like, it's kind of like the Everglades. It's like, it's like the top end of Australia where it's really dry and everything's brown and then it greens up in a wet season and you get billabongs and this sort of stuff. So you have a seasonal wetland area that's seasonally very wet, but other times years not. So if you live in an area that's prone to flooding and standing water on the ground for months at a time, having a predilection for sitting in water makes a little bit more sense. It's also probably a pretty effective way to hide from predators if you're a juvenile carpet python. Sure. So I've, I've noticed forever they're, they, they draw, I guess the most of the pop ones I have now are animals that I've, you know, that are probably four and five generations removed from their wild ancestors. So perhaps mm-hmm. these are, insects are getting a little bit lessened, but in the early days when you were at F1 or F2, it was more prevalent. Mm-hmm. It would drive you nuts because it was hard to even get a good picture of babies sometimes because they'd have hard water spots on them. Yes. Just, they get water crushed. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah. They'd always be sitting there in their water. But it, that, and I'm I'm kind of an asshole, I guess, but I don't give them a big enough water bowl to sit in because I don't want them doing that. Right. You're like a, the hatchlings get like a two ounce portion cup. That's your water bowl. And I guess you can try and get a lot of your body in it if you're really <laughs> committed to it. But I'm sure if I gave them like a big, you know, 12 ounce water bowl or something, they'd all just sit in it. Uh, I do that because I, I don't want them sitting in it. They can lead to skin problems. Yeah. Also, if you're an animal that just crapping on the floor in your enclosure, you've got traces of your own fecal matter on you. You don't notice it on a normally pigmented snake. But if that snake sits in a water bowl and then whatever's on its skin is sitting there in like an 80 degree room, like 80 degree water that's not circulating or moving with poo in it, like that's a petri dish for every kind of that's not sanitary. I mean, snakes don't live in sanitary conditions in the wild, but. I just, I don't want them sitting in gross water. That can't possibly be good. I so I, I try to discourage that. Gotcha. Okay. Agreed. All right. Um, well, let's, I guess we can move into breeding and we can sort of talk about, um, you know, uh, what it, again, going back to the the topic of, you know, we can import these, like, let's talk about, because uh, I've never heard people talk about this. We haven't talked about it. Um, like what, what, what constitutes a, a, a good group uh, of if you wanted to have your own bloodlines or lines or outcrossing? Uh, I don't know, what's your thoughts? You want to go first, Nick? Uh, as far as with any pri- Python project, uh, in carpets in particular, since I do a lot of that, to me, like a 2.2 or 3.3 is like a 2.3 or a 3.3 is an ideal group. Uh, 2.3 works really well. Uh, if you have a single pair of something, that can work out really great as long as everything goes perfect and everybody breeds and nobody ever dies and nothing ever ha- bad ever happens. It can be fine. But that's not how the world works. And we've all been in the hobby for all of us have been in the hobby long enough. It's like, not every male's a good breeder. Not every female's a good layer. Sometimes snakes die. Things happen. And if you only have a single pair and so any one of those things happened, you have nothing. You don't have a project because you're left with one snake. If you have 2.2, 2.3 and one male doesn't breed, guess what? You've got a backup male. 
you can fight those males together in combat them to motivate them to breed, increasing the likelihood the males are going to do anything. If a female lays bad eggs chronically, you've got two others. You can breed two pairs every year and rotate the females, give them every third year off and produce two clutches a year ad infinitum forever and still giving, rotating them in and giving them a rest year. So that's a good group. 3.3 uh, is even better. Uh, so that's what I try to do with every project that's important to me. Uh, 2.2 or 2.3, typically. Oh, I was going to say, what? Well, sorry, I was muted now. What the heck? <laughs> I must be new to this. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, what do you What do you say, Riley? You have a pretty big group of uh, of wild and captive hatched and all that. What was your? Yeah, I I second what Nick is saying. I've I've made the mistake of only getting one point two, and uh, I only have uh, I think I only have the male from that. 1.2 uh remaining and uh, yeah it's just anything can happen freak accidents uh animal gets sick i had a a female a striped imported female randomly just one day i was checking on her and literally looked like her back was broken uh, no idea how it happened um you know you can lose animals in the breeding process even if nothing goes wrong and get them up to that breeding finish line had that happen too uh, mm -hmm. plenty of times actually the last three years i had it happen each year so um i think for any project even outside of just pop ones and carpets 2.2 is a minimum um 3.3 is a little more comfortable yeah 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 okay what about you ben so i'll just speak from what i've been doing because i've only been back doing this for like the last two three years but i've been building a group uh like with three different projects in mind but i okay. have like moving parts that can kind of work in each project so i'm, I'm sitting at 2.5 right now and i'm looking for maybe one or two more males that can kind of uh, fill in where other ones might might not quite work so that's kind of what i've been doing gotcha okay yeah i often so a couple of things come to mind, like, you know, when they're, when you buy wild carpets, let's say from Dan that were captive hatched, um, I guess he would tell you this. I've never asked because I've never asked him directly, but maybe you have a better understanding of this, Riley. Are they coming from the same clutch all the time? Is it, is it different clutches each year? Like how does, how does that work? Um, it depends on the year and the quota that he's allowed to get. So okay. if, you know, earlier on, you know, years ago when I was getting those groups from him of babies, mm -hmm. um, and, and he would have like 20, maybe 30, mm -hmm. those were coming from like two clutches, but it's generally one or two. He would never have like excessive quantities beyond that from what I saw. Mm -hmm. And if he did, a lot of them were also sub adults and adults. Um, he works with, uh, you know, trappers and farms over there that will breed, uh, mm -hmm. animals on their property. So, uh, years ago he was bringing in entire clutches from those farms. Uh, right. so you and I got, uh, animals that are from the same clutch, most likely related for sure. Right. Uh, but then each year it's, you know, 
it's a toss up. I don't know if he gets the information like, Hey, these are offspring from the same babies or from the same parents as last year, or if the farm turns things over, right. You know, I'm not sure, but he's very particular about which farms he works with because he doesn't like the misrepresentation that goes on over there. He's made some videos uh, in the past talking about how he's had to cut off certain business dealings with, with folks because he felt um, there were shady goings on or they just weren't being honest with the representation and he just doesn't want to dabble with that stuff uh, especially with his law enforcement background I, i'm sure he'd just rather play it straight um so yeah i mean i think uh it really all comes down to how many they've got that year and then what that year's quota is and then you know all the hype about uh anything from australia um you know should have never uh, left the country or whatever. Everybody got nervous about Australian stuff. I, I suspect some of that bled over a little bit into pop wind carpets because mm. um, Dan wasn't bringing any in for a while. And he told me directly that, you know, they didn't want to touch anything carpet Python related for a couple of years. So I don't know how much that played a role in it, but yeah, every year I think is different. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of I kind of figured as much if they had like if it was a farm where they had like a you know a group or something is there that there would and I I would imagine that the demand is not that high for them. Right. Know. And if their trappers go out and find a gravid female, they'll bring her in, let her lay her eggs and then let her go. That will eat happen. The babies and yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. All yeah. Right. Yeah. I know that happens with other pythons over there and for that but okay. Yeah, I, I just think, uh, you know, I, I try to bang that drum that like, you know, I, I hope Indonesia stays open for a while, but you never know. Things happen, you know, uh, the crazy way the world is. You never know what's going to change or what law will happen. Uh, so if you have an opportunity to sort of do something like that, or if you, you know, like myself or Riley or Nick or other people that are working with, you know, uh, wild animals it, it would be advantageous i think to add some of that fresh blood in so down the line you can outcross you know certain things and it's doesn't genetic bottleneck i don't know am i am i wrong there nick am i totally off base or uh, no uh, no okay I mean, as far as the, <laughs> I mean that gets into the topic of inbreeding related problems and and all of that which might get a little bit off topic but poplin carpets are one of the ones that you I mean, it's pretty easy to not have that problem. <laughs> it's like you can argue how deleterious the effects of that are in other things for sure. But sure. You know, carpet pythons, poplin carpet pythons, you can get genetically diverse lines. And if you can, you should. Uh, so, yeah, why would you? Why wouldn't you? <laughs> there's the, there's, yeah. <laughs> in some of these things, when you deal with like a lot of the Australian stuff, you don't really have any choice. If you're going to breed jungle carpets, you're going to be breeding some really closely related animals out of necessity because you you can't not do that. You either do it or you don't breed jungle carpets. With poplin carpets, you do have the ability to have unrelated lines, totally unrelated lines or minimally related lines and stuff. And in that case, you know, why wouldn't you do that? 
Yeah, I, I guess you know. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a reptile flight club debate for another day uh, in breeding and not. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, I, I guess what I'm saying is, if it's something that you're that you're concerned with, right? If it's something that you're concerned with, here you have a subspecies of carpet python that it's not necessarily a concern at this point, and you could sort of get a group from various people across the U.S. to where you could get unrelated. Or uh, I would, I would yeah. make a. A suggestion i would like to see more people do basically what i've done and what other people have are sort of to adopt now and that is keeping close tabs on the ancestry of the animals you produce their deep ancestry if indonesia were to just decided to close their doors and no longer allow export of native fauna which could happen frankly at any minute it's like no one would even be surprised if that happened what would the state of play be with our indonesian carpet pythons the vast, the overwhelming majority, people don't even know what they are. They don't know if they're pure or not, much less what they're related to, because people take for granted they can get them and it's not a problem, so they don't keep track of this stuff. If everybody kept track, you know, good records on what they bred to what and where it all came from and all this sort of thing, you know, you would have, you'd, you'd have a, you have a solid foundation for finding animals that are less related or outcrossed or what have you going forward in the event that that happened. But if, you know, if nobody keeps track of anything, it's all just, you know, pop wind carpets and nobody knows any different. Yeah. Yeah. Those look familiar. Yeah. <laughs> that was the first snake I bought from you, Nick. <laughs> from, that weird, from that weird wild caught female I got from Sean Christian a million years ago. Yeah. Yeah. 2000s. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Kudos to you, Nick, for uh, setting a good example in that because I came into carpets uh, naive to a lot of that and tripped over my own feet with some of that and then picked myself up learning. Uh, and now I've maintained that and I find uh, just tons of value in being able to pull up folders on my computer and go back and look and see, you know, who's related to who. You know, you can see looks in certain animals that are recognizable. And uh, and and I'd like to think that, you know, uh, anybody moving forward who does even some uh, attempt at keeping records in the style that you did, it, it could prevent a lot of problems for that group of snakes in the future. Um, I spent the last, you know, five, six years just grabbing popwins from all over. And I think I have, you know, a dozen different lines represented here, including farm hatched, wild caught, imported, everything that I could possibly get. And I have yet to uh, repeat a pairing one year. Like I could rotate males to different females for the next 15 years and never duplicate a pairing, you know, with what yeah. I've got. And, uh, and then I keep a pair from, from each uh, pairing, you know, and then I keep that documented and each one has a certain look in mind and, and being able to look back on all of that and see it all there, like right next to one another is fascinating. And I think being able to preserve that for the future is invaluable. Yeah. Uh, early on, um, you know, Nick was influenced me with the, uh, the lineage stuff and, I can't tell you, man. At first, the Morelia world, they were having... Well, I should say the Chondro world has done it forever, but Carpet Python world, they were like, no, no, that's not happening. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to do it, and Nick's doing it, so we'll know. Because nobody wants won't. to do any extra work. Because it's yeah. lazy. It's like, we don't want to do any... Don't be bothered. 
weird thing is the Condro people kind of started it, but if you look at their their A, their pedigrees are all for hybrid snakes. All the snakes are hybrids. <laughs> And none of the none of and most of them didn't have any images in them. It's just like serial numbers for hybrid snakes. It's like yeah. I guess you can trace the yeah. back, but it's like that's because they all turn green, in. Nick. There's no need for a picture. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to fight with the chondro world. <laughs> what about you, Ben? You're coming back new into it. Are you are you keeping up with lineage or you it doesn't matter to you? Or what's your what's your thoughts? I definitely enjoy seeing it whenever i can find it uh nick is amazing at it uh you can look through the years and years on his site and see all the the different lineages yeah. but i'm i was kind of disappointed whenever i got back into it that other people weren't doing it because i don't know i thought it was more of a thing i remembered it maybe i was just making it up in my head i thought it was more of a thing back in the day um but yeah i, I was disappointed that i couldn't find that for other stuff for jungles and you know other stuff i was shopping for yeah and i, th I think with poplins too the poplin carpets it's kind of like you can you can you can start it especially if you're getting like you know captive hatch or wild caught animals that like you kind of like there's no question it's not wasn't bred to a jag at some point to make granite jags or you know <laughs> it wasn't that you know it's like if you look at the jungle stuff, there's always that one animal. It's like you find this stellar carpet, you know, jungle, and you're like, yes, and you're going through. And, you know, to some people it matters, some people it doesn't. But I think that with this group in particular, it's kind of, uh, I think it's important because, you know, 50 years from now, we that subspecies could be, you know, the the one that can trace it all the way back to, to and and I don't know, do you, it's like, Nick, how do you feel about this? It's your life's work, right? I mean, it's right there in a PDF, right? <laughs> I mean, you can what? just look at it and say, wow, you know? Yeah, well, it's, 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 I, I found that the sort of the tree, like the one you're, um, like you've got on, on the, up on the screen right now, that that is the most effective and simplest way to do it. Um, mm -hmm. When you make these, you don't have to start from scratch. You just add, you just keep adding to it and adding to it and adding to it over time. So it's the most efficient way and it's got a visual representation with photographs and you know information and all that. So I found this to be the, the most effective way to do this. Uh, every person I sell a snake to, I send them the raw file for the ancestor tree so they can edit it. So in theory, hopefully, and I've seen some people do it to greater or, you know, greater or lesser degrees of success where they will, the idea is that, you know, you take this tree I just made for this snake or even this pair of snakes and you don't need to make your own tree. You can just add more stuff you can just, you can literally just add another row below of this is what you did. And you put, you know, this animal, this animal, and you can kind of just keep, you know, keep it going on down the line. Um, I think that with carpet pythons more generally, and it's probably even more important with the Australian forms than it is with the poplins, but it's relative there as well, is this is not a group of snakes that you should probably just go buy some random snake, uh, you know, it's if you're serious at all, or you might even be serious, you, you can't just casually just go buy any old carpet python and figure it out. You'll never figure it out. You'll never know what it even is. You've got to kind of do a little bit of homework. It's really easy, though. I mean, if you wanted to find a pure jungle carpet that, you know, would satisfy, you know, you as being pure, it wouldn't take you that long. It's not that hard to find. It's like, 
And with a poplin carpet, it should be considerably easier to find. But if you just go buy some random snake from a flipper at an expo or something, you're never going to sort that mess out. So it is, it is something I would, you know, people, if you're thinking about getting into carpet pythons of any variety, poplins or otherwise, like do a little bit of homework first, just a little bit, just yeah. 10 minutes. You figured out. It might take like There's, 10 minutes. I'm tired. Of, I mean, I can say, and I know every single one of you is going to agree with me because you've all no doubt had this experience, probably had this experience in the last seven days. And that is the random person who contacts you to ask you questions about some snake they bought from somewhere else. Hey, it's like, I don't know you and you don't know me and I never bought a snake from you and I'm never going to buy a snake from you and I don't even like you very much, but I would like you to tell me what this snake I bought from somebody else is. And it's like, no, no. and nobody can tell you. It's like, it's, it's, it's maddening. And it's, it's like every couple of days I get these and I know you're laughing Eric because I know you get it too. All the I time. Know, all, I know both of you guys, all three of you guys have had this experience. It's like, you can't tell. It's yeah. like, it's think, do a little bit of work. But, and this is, should be standard practice for buying any animal. You're buying a living thing. At least have some idea what you're doing before you buy a living animal. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's there's some on uh some poplin carpets on morph morph market right now that I inquired about. I was like, hey, uh, you got any pictures of the parents? Know where they came from? And just dead silence, no response <laughs> at all. Yeah, <laughs> I think it it separates the men from the boys, huh? I, I that's how I feel. You know, it's like if you want to do this for real, then do it for real. And to your point, Nick, it's like stop being lazy and and put the work in. Like it takes, I don't know, what's it take? Depending, I mean, if you start with something like this, it takes 10 minutes to add the pairing in, you know, I don't know. And and if you want to see what to talking about, you should definitely go to Inland Reptile and look at is what does it say? Lineage. And then there's like goes back to all the way, what, 2009 or does it go farther than that, Nick? I can't remember. We were just looking at your site. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> we were showing them. Um, yeah, we were just showing uh, some of the lineage stuff that you have. aren't even the good ones. Some of them. Oh yeah, I know. I would go to They're like 20. the 2022. Some of the jungle ones are just ridiculous. <laughs> like, like, ah, here you go. Huge. Yeah, like oh, that's, that's not even jungles, but yeah, that's a co yeah coastal one. But that's that's a lot of ancestors. Yeah, very cool. Let's see. Let's look at. I know you have one jungle here. It's probably like uh, is that one at the? No, that's caramel. There you go. Look at that. <laughs> Not yeah. as many on the maternal side because the female is super old. She herself is from 2006. So she's, you know, 18 years old at this point. So just a yeah. hop, skip, and a jump back to the original founder stock. Right. Okay. Go back to my week. Uh... <laughs> well, just, I mean, keep... the mother of that snake is an import. So there's, and the father yeah, there's... Snake is a, is that a, I can't read it with that. I'm afraid to even touch my phone with that. Yeah. 2005 het male produced okay, by yeah, one from 05. That is a very, very, very early het granite. They came over from a guy named Bard in the Netherlands who got it from uh, Piet in the, uh, or Bard is in Norway and Piet is in the Netherlands. Uh, and that was one of the original, one of the very first het granites that made its way to the U.S. Well, that's a perfect segue into what uh, we'll talk about with morphs. Um, yeah. <laughs> so 
currently there is the granite uh, morph and um, you know uh, for years um, it was uh, there was some well not for years but for years you've been outcrossing them um, because there were some issues with them in the early days um, with, with that snake on the screen <laughs> oh really oh yeah oh okay uh, the uh, the because granite is recessive, it encourages like bad behavior, I guess, because people want to make money, don't they? And the fastest way to make a recessive is to breed brother, sister, father, daughter, ad infinitum to make more granites. Mm-hmm. Um, the original animals that uh, it is my understanding that the original animals that produced the first granites were all captive hatch clutch mates. Um, they got imported. Uh, they were undoubtedly siblings. Guy got a pair of them, bred them, granites popped out. But he started out by breeding brother, sister. And then he never outcrossed them ever, not once, just brother, sister, father, daughter, forever, the whole time to make more granites as fast as possible. And by the time they got here, it's only hadn't even been that many generations. It'd only been a handful of generations into this. Uh, but they were already having problems. Um, the granites, the visual granites were prone to RIs. They were just seem a little bit weak. Um, I had a, that pair of hats and I never produced a viable granite from them. Uh, they would all die. Uh, a lot of the normals would die. Uh, I had a clutch as a co trainer, acts like 13, 14 babies, and ultimately zero of them lived to be a year old. They all hatched, they all ate, but then they would stop eating and just wither away and die. The total mess. Around that same time, uh, I'm sure you know Ben Morrill. Mm-hmm. Ben was doing his uh, PhD stuff. Uh, and he was doing, a, one of the things he was doing is he wanted to demonstrate the existence of monozygotic twinning in snakes. And mm-hmm. I had in that clutch of messed up granites and possible heads and whatnot that weren't doing well, I had uh, a set of identical twins that were obviously identical twins. But he wanted to prove it using you know, genomically. Um, so I sent him as part of that, I sent him samples of the parent animals and all the clutch mates of the twins. But at that point, there were only six of them. There were only six of the original 13 alive at that point. Um, he, he took all of them and he, he proved that they were indeed monozygotic twinning, which monozygotic twins, which wasn't surprising. But one of the things that came out of that is they were unbelievably inbred. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll paraphrase a little bit, but this is basically a direct quote. He says, he looked at like, he says, and the, he looked in like five places and he said they were homozygous for four out of the five genes he looked at. He goes, it's clinically, he's clinically, it's evidence of extreme inbreeding issues. It's no wonder these things are having problems. That's what he said. Okay. And at that point, I started aggressively outcrossing them for years to get as far away from that original stuff. And wouldn't you know it, even within just a generation or two, things got much better. Right. Oh, also in the original visual granites were not sterile, but were extremely reproductively challenged. Uh, they would virtually always slug out. Or you'd get like three eggs and nine slugs and one egg would hatch and two babies would die and the rest were done. So it'd be that kind of a, they were almost a waste of time. Um, and then fast forward, you know, years of outcrossing and a lot of those problems of fertility issues and the overall weakness issues largely have gone away. And I have female granites that lay eggs all the time. It's not really, you don't really think about it so much anymore, but uh, they were much more problematic in the early days. 
Okay. Um, I know Ben, you work with the granite gene. What's your, what's your, uh, what are you, what are you trying to do with it? Yeah. So I, uh, have one male granite that's a possible het for Xanthic also. There he is pictured. Um, and then I have a hundred percent het female and then two other possible het females. And basically with that group, um, two of the females are lighter colored and I'm kind of hoping to move more in like a high orange granite kind of look. Um, and then I've got more of like a high contrast uh, female that uh, I would want to kind of mix in there too. That will, mm. if I can make granites out of that, then I will breed her into my high contrast group instead of back into the granite group. Gotcha. So yeah, I'm kind of going two different directions with granite and then, you know, everything's possible at, for Xanthic. So I'm hoping to maybe get some Xanthic mixed in too. Okay. I mean, so, um, real quick on this, I have, a, I have a thought, Nick, I don't know, maybe I'm totally wrong because I know Exantic is taking away the yellow, right? I know it doesn't take it all the way or away or whatever. Am I, am I wrong with that? Uh, it, probably. One of these days you should just do a, a really short, like 30 minute show and you can title the show. Everything anyone told you about Exantic is wrong. Okay. <laughs> Everything okay. is wrong. Nothing that people believe about Exantic, anything is right. A, none of them are actually Exantic. B, it's not even recessive. It's like it's an incomplete dominant hyposanthism. That's what they are. They're not Exantic. Okay. So, and it's not recessive. So it's everything's. It's, but if you try to explain incomplete dominant hyposanthism to people, their brain just starts to melt and they just look at you glassy eyed and it's just. Okay, we'll just, but that's, yeah, there, it doesn't remove all the yellow pigment. You get a partial reduction of yellow pigment in the heterozygous form, and you uh -huh. get a much larger reduction in the homozygous form, but not a complete elimination, which is why snow carpets don't look totally white, do they? Where did all right. that yellow come from? That's right. the remainder that it doesn't remove. If they were truly exanthic, you know, it would remove all of it, but it doesn't. Um, I think I think what my my theory is, and I and I, I think about this with ball pythons. Whenever I would see a pastel exantic, it would pop, right? And it sort of went against my again everything that's wrong with the exantic. Throw it out out of your mind, I guess. Now, so we'll have to do that episode at some point <laughs> to, to, oh, to get it for the record. Ball pythons too. Their exantics aren't recessive and aren't exantics either. It's the same thing, right? But that pastel that was yellow. And the exantic would sort of make that color instead of that base color. It's like what we see here in Ben's, uh, you know, just in the head there. When you saw that exantic grant, I mean, that's a freaking killer combination, in my opinion, uh, as far as carpet morphs go. And it really just pops. And some of them seem to be, you know, and I guess, you know, seem to have more white to black and others, you know, some people, you know, saturate their photos to make them super white. Some people actually have you know high white uh you know animals look but i don't know my thinking was always that if it had yellow like that that it's gonna make a nicer exantic in the long run i guess is my uh thinking am i off there is that total bullshit <laughs> um, school me <laughs> well the more yellow you have the more that will be left over after the exantic right. gene does its job 
However, I think a bigger thing that affects the phenotype of stuff like that is uh, all of you have noticed this, no doubt, that there are two different types of granites in the sense that there's like two, mm -hmm. it's a gradient and there's like two different extremes to it. You get the really contrasty high pattern ones that are really granity and it's really like bold. And then you get those other ones that is a much lower pattern, lower contrast. It's less busy, but they're both granites and those two ends of the spectrum. And you don't get a lot in the middle. You get these two different looks and that's going to look very different in an exanthic. Uh, those two forms are going to look very different from each other. Right. Okay. I just don't have the science behind it, but yes, in a way that they're, and then I guess is that, I think this is the other thing that, that I think, well, we've been talking about this for years, but like the idea that what you're breeding that animal to is going to make a difference on how those babies, especially when you're talking morphs, right? I think that sometimes people just focus on, you know, uh, I, th I think of the original zebra that came in. It doesn't look anything like what the zebras you see today. Right. <laughs> it's like completely that's, that's the thing it's that people have accustomed themselves to this belief that's totally incorrect that morphs are somehow endowed with magical powers and that the morph the mutant gene is the only thing that matters it's the only thing that has an effect on anything and it's absolutely not true in a sense all of these things are polygenic yes the morph gene is doing what it, it the broken gene is doing what it's doing but what makes up the balance of the variation you see in most morphs of the variation in appearance is not variation in expression of the mutant gene. It's the expression of all the other genes that animal has that code for aspects of color and pattern. All those other genes get a say in the final outcome also. So you can selectively breed morphs. And I think, I think carpet python people are more because we're one of the few sectors of the hobby that hasn't totally abandoned selective breeding. We still do a lot of that. We still, you know, uh, like if you look at, you know, it, it, the ball python people, it's easy to beat up on them. We all do it. It is because it's easy. Poor but ball python people. It does, it's the best thing to illustrate the, the phenomenon. And that is right. like if you had uh, an average pop wing carpet and you had a really, truly exceptional, like just awesome one, people will pay a lot more money for the awesome one. They will pay a premium for something that is exceptional. So selective breeding is rewarded because people will pay more money for better quality examples. Mm -hmm. If you contrast that with a morph only market like ball pythons where no one cares about anything but the morph, they will give you one extra nickel. You can have the greatest exanthic pastel clown that ever existed. Right. And you can have the most average mundane one and no one will give you an extra nickel for the awesome one. All they care about is does it have genes A, B and C? And that is the only thing that matters. They don't, they, there's no premium. There's it, that selective breeding, the paying attention to the ingredients you put in there to make a better looking animal is not rewarded. It's just a collection of morphs. It's like they're ordering off an a la carte menu. And it's like, I want morph A, B, C, and D in this order. This is what I want. And this is what it costs. And that's just, you're ordering like a la carte. Right. The, the rest, these other factors are more nuanced that go into making something, you know, really pop or really a good quality example it, it's not rewarded but in carpets thankfully it still is people will still they've not forsaken that right so they will pay i mean a lot of this stuff i sell you know a normal i mean at this point to me a zebra doesn't even command an extra dollar of premium it's not like yes it's the mutate it's a morph but if it's a even nice normal jungle that's better looking it's like it's like it doesn't really 
you might want a zebra, you might not, but I'm not charging really any extra money for the fact that it's a zebra. It's how good of an example is this? Mm -hmm. That's what drives this thing. You can sell, you know, I have seen people sell, people I know have sold normal Poplin carpets for the same money as granites and even more, because if it's a really freaking good one, people will pay it. People want that quality or what they perceive as quality. And I think that's a good thing. 100%. Yeah. What, do you, what are your thoughts, Riley? I totally agree. I will pay double or even triple if there's option yeah. for quality over over just a base example. I mean, yeah, night and day. It's no question about it. And I, I think the ball python people miss an opportunity with that because there are better examples of those morphs out there and they could start with that and build off of those better quality ones and take the same enthusiasm with their Frankenstein approach and just make a better version of it if they if they cared. Yeah. Um yeah, it's it's fun, man. I like breeding the selective stuff and the different looks. There's just no end to it. And then to take each one the next second and third and fourth step is just you have no idea what's coming next, but it's like nobody else is doing it. So it's super exciting and it's super rewarding. And then you know when you project that people yeah. get excited about it in the same way and so it's it's a contagious thing and i and i yeah yeah i love that people are still holding on to that yeah i think uh i think too the thing with carpets i that's I, probably with nah maybe not with ball python I'm, I'm not really sure i can't speak on that but carpets seem to have a lot of variability in a clutch coastals in particular like they pop out just every clutch has a crazy one in it and you're just like where the hell did this thing come from what? like holy shit i just remember the old mp days and it would be like you know they, somebody would post up that picture of that wild one from the clutch and everybody's like what the hell is that holy shit you know and maybe it's because we really didn't have morphs back in the day i guess i don't know but like I think that, um, you know, there was that appreciation for just that crazy one that popped out, and, you know, and then you got the, the color change that they go through and, you know, it's like, you don't even really like once they're hatched, you still have to wait and you're waiting and you're waiting. And you're like, damn it. I know this is going to be a nice one. And, or sometimes the one you don't think is going to be a nice one. You go and sell like that one you showed earlier, Riley, you're like, why the hell yeah. did I get rid of this one? You know? And yeah. There's two that this season that have taught me that, and you know, the jungle folks have it figured out. You hold on to a, a trophy clutch for a year or so, so oh, you know yeah. what they're doing. Uh, I thought I had that clutch figured out after a few months. I was like, oh, all right, you know, let some of these folks get some. And then they started shedding out, and they already have like the paid or the spoken for tags on them. And I, oh, <laughs> bitch, I shouldn't have done that. And I look at my hold back. I'm like, would he note it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Damn, Damn it. it. I can't do that. That would be so mean. Uh, well, I guess that I got to make some folks happy. Yeah. Well, I guess yeah. it's free advertising too, right? You get your your name on and out. Like, you know, Riley it's Reptiles great, produced man. this. Or, you know, Bam yeah, produced yeah. This, Nick produced that, whatever, you know. So yeah, they cool. give you updates later on, and it's very humbling, you know. It's really cool to see. Yeah, 100%. You ever, you ever find yourself trying to buy back a snake you sold to somebody? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Done that a few times. Always for way more than they paid me for it initially. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it always seems that way, right? Um, 
I, I, I was going to show this crazy one. You know, you just talk about it. Unfortunately, you know, I was so excited about this. It was from the Tiger IJ clutch. And as soon as the pot hatched out, you can see in that picture in the bottom, I was like, oh, this one is, oh, this one is cool. And it shed like three times and then it just rolled on me and I was so bummed out about it. But that's just, I mean, that's just part of it, right? That's the thing that people don't talk about. And, you know, it's always rainbows and unicorns when really it's not, um, it's not the case, but you know, I don't know. To me, that just screams that like that patched out. And it's like, oh shit. I think, I think I sent a picture to Nick and he's like, can I have that one? And I was like, no. <laughs> I'm still, I'm, I'm on like year 12 of waiting for some of your melanistic pop wind stuff. Uh, uh, yeah. 12 years later or some lightning line jungles, either one of those things I've been after you for. Yeah. That makes two long. of us, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> I got seniority on this. I've been yeah. after this. Oh, one. I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well, yeah we could. well, I, you know, I don't know. I just, I, I held on to everything sort of like what, uh, Riley was saying, maybe it's time to uh, start uh, sending uh, some of that stuff out. Um, I was going to talk about this real quick, Nick. We talked about it before the show uh, started, but um, I'm looking for oh, this crazy thing. The crazy uh, albino stuff that hatch outs uh, the tiger IJ stuff. Eight okay, years. so uh, there was a guy in the United States that had animals that were about a year older from the same parents, as I recall, as the one you had on that uh chart you showed mm -hmm. i think his were from 2004 from the same parents and they produced a couple of these t-positive animals domestically they hatched out they shed they seemed fine uh but they would not eat uh for anything the guy got all the rest of the clutch eating and he was just adamant that he was going to get them to eat and they were going to eat mice and it was all going to be great and I begged and I pleaded with him, it's not going to be all right. It's not going to work out. You're not going to succeed. Just send me the freaking snakes before they die. And then one of them died. I'm like, for the love of God, send me the remaining snake, please. It's like, it's not going to, he just is absolutely just, you know, this eternal optimist that was, man, they're just going to eat this mouse at some point. It's like, they're never going to eat it. <laughs> Offered a bird, you go buy a freaking leopard gecko. I don't care, whatever it wants. <laughs> You give it whatever it wants. You don't let it starve. Yeah. Right. So as you can probably surmise, guess what? It starved. It didn't eat. And right. it died. Those are the only ones. Uh, there may be one other one that a, a notable East Coast uh, carpet guy whose name I also won't mention. Uh, I never saw pictures of it, but from what was talked to talked about kind of in a hush-hush manner, it seemed to imply, I, my guess is that it, the same thing. Yeah. That again, and you know, also not not lasting a particularly long time. Correct. Um, so it does seem that whatever causes this is not it's not healthy for the snake, mm -hmm. uh, and that's why there's yeah never gone anywhere. So we were we were kind of talking um, a minute ago when your, your phone kicked out, but it was sort of saying like I wonder you know, if this would even be good to have a, an animal like this, what it would look like or whatever, if it, if it did, you know, grow up, uh, and you know, you're able to breed it and produce it and reproduce it. Um, what do you think? So we started talking, I think it was Ben that said, you know, the colors of a, of a pop one carpet would, would really make that pop, you know, we kind of see that with Darwin's, I guess. Um, I don't know. Do, do you have any thoughts on that as far as like, I mean, I know it's all just speculation, right? We we don't know, but like, 
What do you think would happen with an adult that would look like that? Um, if it was a T-positive albino, it would probably be pretty interesting, Yeah, uh, which allows for deeper, richer tones. Um, if it was a T-negative albino, it would just end up looking like an albino Darwin. There's not that much difference. You strip away all the melanin and you end up with some right. orangey albino. Um, these looked notably different than albino Darwins do at hatching. Although, mm-hmm. and they don't seem to have like for as almost uniformly red as Papuan carpets are, these things all hatched out like this with bold contrasting pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas you've hatched out albino Darwin stuff, it's usually yeah. just like like a patternless pink worm for a long time. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Wait till you now, now go and selectively breed yourself some pure Darwin albino tigers that are striped from head to tail. They really look like crap when they're babies. <laughs> For as good as they look later, like you're basically a year before you can actually see the striping other than with a black light or something. Uh, but these looked weirdly different in that they had a, a contrasting pattern and didn't have that w- overall wash of pink. So it's just one of those. I think people in the hobby would be a little surprised at all the morphs of things that have existed that never got established. Yeah. That died and never, I mean, the like the three piebald emerald tree boas that were born to a gravid wild caught in the United States, all of which died. And they were pied like a ball python, like crazy pied emerald tree boas. Oh, wow. Uh, there have been pied annulated tree boas, didn't get established. There's been any number of, there was a legit hypomelanistic or T-positive jungle carpet. I knew the guy that produced it many years ago. It was basically purple. Wow. Uh, didn't Didn't make it in the longer run. Uh, there have been all manner of Dumeril's boas and things that were hypomelanistic or T-positive that never seemed to last. Uh, I hatched what appeared to be a T-positive albino Brisbane coastal that was weird and lived for a couple of years, but it was never quite right. And mm. it, it, it sadly passed on. I hatched a, I hatched a granite something uh, a couple seasons ago that it didn't, uh, it never, it never was quite right, but it was obviously like some crazy thing. It had like three speckles on the whole snake. It was mostly patternless. It was really, really bizarre, but wow. You know, a lot of that stuff, you never, it never gets to the finish line. So you never get to see, you know, what, what it would have turned into had it, had it made it. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff. This, um, so when, so when we were talking to the other thing that we brought up was the, uh, color change that happens with pop ones. Like you, you, you'll go into your snake room in the daytime. You have one snake, you come back in in the evening and you see a totally different snake. I, I, I seem to think that maybe that happens because of like, they're trying to uh, hide from a predator or something, or maybe it has to do with temperature regulate. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on, do you guys have any thoughts on what's going on with that color change? You know what I'm talking about? Where it gets the lavender-like look. It's it, it's it's strange in that it, you would the obvious thing you would suspect would be it would aid in thermal regulation. The more you dark you are, the more absorb heat you absorb, and lighter you are, you re, you repel that heat. But what you but behaviorally it seems the opposite in that they tend to be lighter at night and darker during the day. <laughs> you think yeah. you'd expect if it had it was a role in thermal regulation, it would go the opposite direction. Uh, but whatever it is, you see it in other, you know, uh, poplin carpets seem to be able to do it to a greater extent than pretty much all the other carpet pythons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, but among scrub pythons, you'll see the Halmahera python can do it like yeah. way more, way more than the others. Why? And it's usually the same sort of a thing. Um, 
so that that's an area somebody should write a paper on that. Somebody should uh, somebody yeah. should study that more in depthly because I'd be very curious to know the the real reasons why they what what the advantage of that is. I think on one of our field herping trips, we were talking about you know um, tigers and that the I, I think that what is it is it access deer that they eat in India or whatever it doesn't matter but anyway these deer can't they only see everything as orange so they sort of just like disappear you know so my thought was is there some kind of uh predator prey type of relationship that they have that like that color change sort of hides them uh from whatever that predator would be but who knows? I don't know. But yeah, I think you're right. Somebody's got to write a paper on it. Chop, chop, Daniel Natouche. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, all right. What else do we got? Let's talk about some of your uh, projects. Let's let's give Ben, uh, like, uh, talk about some of the uh, breeding projects that he has going on. And we'll pull some of it up. Like, what's your, what's your main project you got, <clears throat> Ben, that you're excited about? Well, I think the thing I'm most excited about is the high contrast poplin carpets. Um, I have a uh, a pair um, from uh, uh, oh, I'm blanking on it. Uh, <laughs> Mike. Uh, Mike Cross. Mike Cross. Yes. Yeah. Um, have a pair from him, and he started with wild caught, um, and these are F threes. Um, so they are, sorry, my dog's barking. Um, they're F3s from his line, uh, just breeding back with, with his, I think he started with a group of six. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's kind of breeding towards this high contrast look. Um, the picture you're showing right there is, or the group of pictures you're showing right there is actually the same animal just (laughs) in his different color phases. Like we were just talking about, he can go like really purple um or he can go like he looks like a jungle almost yellow and black then everything in between as he's gotten older he's kind of lost some he's he's more of your typical uh you know tans and and oranges but he he's still a really stellar animal so i have a female uh that goes with him and then i also got a female from nick that is from you know a, a good long lineage uh real high contrast lots of orange so that trio works together and then this one uh is the high contrast uh possible double het exanthic and granite and this is one that kind of floats between the two projects this is one that i want to breed with the high contrast animals but i also want to breed with the you know the my granite male and and kind of see what direction I could go with like high contrast granites, high contrast exanthic. Gotcha. And are they, and then these are kind of like, I'm sorry, what? No, no, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, These are kind of like the high orange. These are both possible double heads, exanthic and granite. Uh, And, you know, kind of want to see high orange granite. Um, and then if I get exanthic granite mixed in, I think really like exanthic granites would be really cool too. Oh, heck yeah. Okay. How about you, Riley? What are some of, is, <clears throat> is some of your uh, most exciting 
stuff. Let's see. I think we got. I have uh, a lot of different <clears throat> directions in in the Poplin group uh, that I have. So uh, the the animal on the left there is Redman, and he produces a lot of really high colored stuff when paired with uh, females that even have like a decent amount of orange. And then mm-hmm. the animal to the right is actually his, his father. Um, oh, no kidding. Okay. Yeah. Who uh, was uh, an imported animal that I got as a little baby from Dan years ago. And he's been a stud. Um, and he throws everything from like heavy black animals to animals that throw lots of nice oranges like in Redman. Um and Redman was a standout as a baby. He just he kept his red, his neonatal red, multiple sheds in better than the rest, and uh, he seems to to pass that on quite nicely uh, in his offspring. So I have a vein of of you know high colored stuff that's just trying to see how orange I can get things, and then um, I have some stuff where I'm just trying to get them as black as possible. Those are a couple babies from this year. Uh, the one on the left is uh, is a red man offspring, and oh, nice. not a holdback. I, I just sold him actually. Uh, too yeah. late, people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the one on the right uh, was from uh, his father, who still produces amazing animals. And I just get so many different looks. Um, I've kind of had a fondness for stripe stuff. So a lot of my animals have some level of striping and then it carries on. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Okay, so the top left one there is uh, that's actually a female produced by uh, Emily Stoddard. Uh, although that's her maiden name. I think her, her married name now is Emily Dubois, but. Um, I got a pair of really dark animals from her and they just produce amazing stuff. Um, the okay. animal on the bottom is actually a female that's related or a sibling to Redman. And then the top right animal uh, was an animal that produced some high orange animals for me Ooh, two seasons ago. She got egg bound, so I only got uh, four good eggs out of that. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I get looks that cover the spectrum and I don't even think I have, you know, all of the different looks covered. I've seen stuff on in Nick's collection that's for sale. That's like completely different than what I have. I see stuff that you have that's completely different from what I have. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's um, a bunch of different looks that you can go for, for sure. Are these older or younger animals? Are these are all a couple of years old um okay. the one on the left is uh that's that uh that male tiger ij line animal you sent me years ago oh okay and then uh the one on the right is a female from the same clutch as red man so gotcha just totally different look yeah she was dark super dark her whole life and then all of a sudden just kind of has these subtle oranges coming in nicely so <laughs> So is the orange and red like where you're, I mean, I know you're doing a variety of stuff, but is that like where your main focus is at? Yeah. 
I would say so. I'd like to see how much of uh, in that angle, in that vein, how much of the black I can push out and how far up uh, dorsally because it tends to be more colorful caudally as opposed to cranially. But um, you, you tend to get more of a fade where it's darker closer to the head. And I want to see how far I can push it up mm. dorsally and cranially and see if I can just make like a a completely orange and buckskin, like no black animal sort of, uh, kind of look Yeah, as far as that goes. So. Sure. Yeah. hundred percent. Okay, cool. And then we'll hit on <clears throat> Nick. What's going on with these? <laughs> um, I think she's gravid, but, uh, I know three people Lord. that want to get on the list of that clutch. <laughs> I gotta make good eggs are those first time for that yes, male uh, female produced some stuff for me last couple seasons but uh we'll see um, i don't hold my breath until i get eggs in the ground usually but uh, i didn't uh i was anticipating the market just generally being really down this year so i kind of when the time when i'm and it certainly looked like it was going to be that way so when it at the beginning of every breeding season, I look at like, what do I have on the shelf? Basically, what do I have? Because I don't want to overproduce anything. And what do I kind of think the market's going to be? And I try to make a prediction and I'm usually wrong. And I was spectacularly wrong. So I paired very few snakes for me anyway, much fewer than I normally would. So I'm not going to be kind of light on popwin carpet stuff this year. Uh, and then of course, once I decide and lock down what I'm doing for the year, then everything starts selling like crazy. And so now I might end up kind of with a dearth. Um, I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm not making a lot of double head exanthic granite stuff. I made a fair number of those mm -hmm. this past year. So I'm breeding my females and making wild types. So I, I could put a exanthic granite double visual male on that female like I did last year, but nope, going with the normal. Cause nice. that's, that's what I want to do. So nice. Uh, I've got uh, two clutches coming from that particular male. We'll see if they're good eggs. It's too early to tell. I breed everything really late, but gotcha. Yeah. There'll be a clutch of exanthic granites with another female, but uh, not a lot of not a lot of morph stuff this year. Mostly wild types. Gotcha. Okay. Ben, I, I was. I, are you breeding this? You're not breeding this season, right? Not. No yeah. carpets. No, no carpets. No carpets. Gotcha. Antaresia, right? <laughs> yeah, I got some children's yeah. pythons coming. Gotcha. Okay. Um, as for me, I mean, everybody knows my one project that, you know, they were talking about earlier, obviously is the, uh, uh, poison Ivy. <laughs> uh, I figured <laughs> I, there was, uh, there's her. <laughs> um, and, uh, I put, I put up a picture of her parents. They were, they were wild animals. Um, they actually came from, uh, Jake Milbrat is sort of uh, who did that. Um, I think the female that's on the left is, is much darker, but I do have a female that is, uh, that I, that I got from uh, Ish this past year. That's uh, pretty dark and I'm going to put a male. Um, hopefully she goes, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> put a male with her and see what happens with that. The weird thing about this, you know, people have heard me talk about this before is, um, and Jake, uh, shared the, the same experiences as why he got rid of it. Um, that they hatch out normal and as they age, they get darker and darker and darker. 
And um, they don't go completely black because she still has like the white on the, the labial scales, which I kind of like because it kind of looks like a skull face almost. I kind of like that look, <laughs> you know, so I'm kind of glad that it's not completely black. Um, but uh, but that's that one. Uh, I think I, I got a banded uh, project from uh, this girl. She's an F3. Um, and she produced some crazy looking, uh, like, I don't know if I put a picture of it in here. No. Um, but anyway, it was, um, uh, nope, never mind. Um, and then, <clears throat> so I got the banded project that, that I'm doing. And then, um, I have this high yellow type of contrast with the orange flames on the side. That's a lot look that I like. Um, I have a lot of animals that look like that. Um, especially with that yellow head. Uh, and then the other thing that I, that I particularly like is the stripe stuff. There's one of the tiger IJ babies from the same clutch that, that, uh, Riley's talking about, but like, I don't, I, I see a few people working with stripe stuff, but for whatever reason, uh, I don't know. They, there's not, you know, I think Riley, you, you got a great group of stripe stuff. I'm sure you do next tucked away somewhere (laughs) (laughs) the stuff you don't talk about (laughs) um here's another wild caught animal that i have that's uh oh shit uh stripe i like that pinstripe type of look um you know with the small saddles on the side uh so you know a couple different directions you could go uh with that stuff and then obviously high contrast with like with that I, i to me I love how the saddles kind of had that orange chestnut brown type of look. And then it's outlined very, very, you know, just a little bit in black. Um, and with that, uh, khaki color, uh, base color, I guess. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's kind of, I think that's my, and then, well, that's that crazy one that died. And then I have, this is that K2 Eddie stuff that I had for a while. And, um, for whatever reason, it has this weird look to it. Nick, you have some of this stuff too. I know you got it uh, from, from somebody a while back, but uh, that all came from Luke Snell, which is probably the guy that really steered me in a direction of uh, poplin carpets uh, with some of some of the stuff that he was working with. Um, but yeah, that's kind of like where my head's at. I like the orange. I didn't in- include it, but I have one from that banded girl where the 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 orange is just super intense um, on it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's sort of my projects. And what else we got on the list to talk about? Um, I don't know. I thought we would maybe talk about like some of the history of some of the stuff, um, like, um, you know, people talk about poster child, they see her, the names PC. That's sort of what that was. Um, Spitfire was a big one back in the day. That's Yasser. I think he breeds colubrids now, right? He's a colubrid guy. Only weird <laughs> colubrids. He breeds like obscure, weird localities of obscure snakes. It's awesome. Right. <laughs> Just like the craziest oddball stuff, which I think that's commendable. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Sure. I've, it's I've funny got- when I when I first started going to the forums and uh sort of like being introduced to like you and Yasser and and uh, Sean Christian and, you know, Justin and all, all the, the carpet guys. It was, I remember, um, 
you know, I would just read the post between, you know, you and Yasser and, and like, just like soaking it up like a sponge, just like, Oh, this is the great, it was every night I would come home and, you know, it's so different time from back in the day. And then this is sort of what I wanted to talk about and get your guys thoughts on it. Um, But, you know, you would, it wasn't like you could just look at your phone and see what's happening on the forum. You could, you had to wait until the, you know, the end of the night when you got home from work or whatever. And you, you know, instead of watching TV, you go on the forum and you're watching these, everybody talk about their carpet pythons. And is this pure Is the Jag have neuro is, you know, is the tiger, what's the, you know, all that, that stuff that, uh, that, that, I don't know. I, I kind of liked it. What, I guess we'll start with you, Nick, cause you're my age. What, what was your, what was it like back then? What do you see? is better uh, or what do you see I is that in many ways it was better i personally wasn't better i was not as well behaved as i am now i was younger and you know rubbed a lot of people the wrong way maybe i still do probably but i hope i'm better now than i was then and oh no yeah back in those yeah. my younger days i was very combative and I always I just had a chip on my shoulder and I was always trying to prove to everybody how smart I was about everything and that manifested in me being an asshole frankly a lot of times and I got in a lot of big arguments with Yasser we were friends and then we kind of fell out and then we were like weird mortal enemies for a long time there over just <laughs> stoop over what like egos and stupid arguments about carpet pythons like in hybrids like it was just I don't look back at my own behavior and the way I comported myself at very fondly back in those days. Uh, right. I'm glad the Yasser's back in the hobby. I've talked to him a few times. He's a good guy. I kind of, I definitely yeah. meant how I behaved. I mean, he was busting balls too, for sure. But I mean, yeah, I yeah, 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 yeah. With any, I, I recognize my own sort of like immaturity back in those years. You know, that was 20 years ago, but you know. But uh, I think as a vehicle for disseminating information, the old forum days were better. Uh, social yeah. media, it's there, and then it's gone, and three days later, you can't even find it. You can't go back and find that stuff later. So as far as, a re- as being a repository for knowledge, I think it was a better system. Yeah. I do need to mention, yeah. our, uh, I do need to mention, uh, I need to get going here in about 15, 20 minutes. I have a, my got to play with my, oh. my pool league. And it's a considerable okay. drive, so I do have to get going. So if there's anything you wanted to ask me or anything before, just keep that in the back sure. of your mind. I know we want to talk. You want to talk about the Nova thing or whatever, but so sure, okay. Um, what maybe what we'll do is we'll do the Nova thing, and then after that, me, you, and Ben will hit that question that we just hit. Does that sound good? About you know just the forum or whatever, and you know that kind of thing. Um, Let's uh, let's go into that. So this would be, uh, you know, the, the Patreon Totally thing. disrupted the outline now. Oh, totally God damn it, Nick. <laughs> Okay. That's uh, what editing so is for. About 2000, geez, this is, you think about the dates associated with things and it reminds you how old yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, man. I know. <laughs> that animal, I got that snake as a baby in 2007. Like Holy shit. Yeah, so we're 17 years on now. Uh, that's 2007, and I got his little tiny baby. Uh, weighed about 30 grams. Uh, the Nova Guineas. What the heck are these things? They've always been kind of an enigma. Um, there was a story attached to them like there always is, but it was it was odd that basically they, the, the story was that they were from Papua New Guinea, the PNG side of the island. That was not backed up by anything. 
they are weird looking. They are different. They don't look like other poplin carpets. They're not even that red of babies. They have a weird head structure with an elongated snout and upturned rostral region. You don't see that on any of the other ones. They lay larger clutches of slightly smaller eggs. So they're kind of odd. What are these things? Lots of speculation. Uh, the original guy that had them, there is a CITES document paper trail with those, but it's within from, it was, there's a time in the European Union when you still needed CITES documents to go from country to country, and there's old CITES documents, and you had to list the country of origin on those old paperworks, and it was listed as Nova Guinea, which is, you know, New Guinea. Uh, if they were from Indonesia, you'd think you'd say Indonesia, not New Guinea. Uh, but the, other than that name appearing listed as a country of origin, that's really it. And so they were always kind of an enigma. I, uh, I brought those animals, the first ones in, I brought in 4.2, so that's all I could get. Uh, at the time, they were calling them poor man's jags, which is funny because now they're worth considerably more than jag, but because uh, they kind of had that reduced pattern look to them. Uh, and I thought, this will be easy. I'll get the snakes because I can, and it'll be easy for me to figure out the background story of these things because everybody's still alive. Usually you hit the wall when somebody's passed away and you can't ask somebody questions because they literally died. In this case, everybody was still alive, still is to this day, is my knowledge. Uh, but a couple of these people were just like had gotten out of the hobby entirely and are not interested in answering the phone or answering questions about snakes. And they're just unavailable to answer any questions about anything. So I was never able to really put that one to bed. Uh, I bred them a few times and then I sold the project off because I didn't know what they were. And uh, so fast forward several years go by, I no longer have any of these anymore. Right. And uh, before I parted with the last of them, I took skin samples or shed, shed skins because we were in the run up to doing the second edition of the book. And basically, uh, I can report what these things actually are. I had Warren Booth when he ran the all the DNA work for the new book and did that phylogenetic tree based on all these samples. Uh, everything keyed out basically just like it was supposed to based on the most recent work done with Australian specimens in 2014 and 15. The Palmersons were consistent with what they are. Everything was consistent with what it was supposed to be. I also, not included in the book, I had him run the DNA of the Nova Guineas for my own personal. Because I don't have a, a location associated with them, I did not include that. I pruned it out of the tree. But in that batch, I have their genetic information, so, so to speak. Uh, and they are completely consistent with being from New Guinea. All the other speculation about all the other things, they might be some kind of coastal or whatever, turns out, no. They're as, as weird looking as they are and as phenotypically different as they are, there is no daylight between them and a normal poplin carpet at all. So hmm. you can, that, the, the story has always been there from New Guinea and the DNA suggests that that's actually true. Uh, so, and I've been sitting on that little nugget for like four years. So there you go. <laughs> How's it feel to share? <laughs> Finally shared it. Finally shared it. So yeah. Nice. There are a couple other little, yeah, there, when I had Warren run all that stuff, it's like, this is what I need for the book to mm -hmm. generate a phylogenetic tree for these things. But there were a couple specimens of things of interest that I had him run at the same time, uh, This, which this is one of them, uh, to answer a couple of these sort of like uh, longstanding questions and areas of doubt. So uh, I think we can put this one to bed now. They're Papuan carpets of a different flavor. Uh, why they look the way they look is an open question. 
uh, and you really can't answer that without uh, speculation. Uh, early on in the doing as much background research on this uh, group of snakes as I possibly could, and at the time there, I can't remember the guy's name, there was a guy in the UK that was also simultaneously obsessed with figuring it out. So mm -hmm. we're kind of working in tandem. And there was some suggestion that this population that the founder animals came did in fact come from PNG from the an area called the Moorhead District of PNG, which is sounds more exotic than it is because it's literally just over the other side of the border. It doesn't explain why they're so weird because that contiguous area of eucalypt savanna where the carpets occur, three quarters of it's on the Indonesian side, but a little bit of it's on the Papua side. And it's just that area. It's like, it literally, it doesn't explain mm. why, if they were from there, it doesn't explain why they're odd. But genetically, they are one and the same. So I think we can put that one to bed. Wow. So <clears throat> I'll throw this little tidbit out. Uh, you go to uh, iHerb. It's not I, is it? No, iNaturalist, sorry. I hurt. Wow. That's a blast from the past. I naturalist has, um, uh, you can go on there and kind of look at the, uh, sightings of, um, uh, poplin carpets. And oddly enough on the side that you're talking about, Nick, one of the ones kind of has a grayish type of look like those. I, I'll have to, I don't know if you've ever seen that. I don't know if you looked into that when, you know, I'll send you a picture of it. I'll send you guys a picture of it and, you know, you can sort of look at it. I know it doesn't prove anything, but I don't, I don't know. Just a little interesting tidbit to add. Um, there was only one. There's only one sighting from that side, which is odd. <laughs> when you look for uh, pictures of wild carpets in Papua, you almost always find ones from around Port Moresby, which is mm -hmm. quite a distance away, and it's a largely disjunct population. You rarely find pictures of wild ones from the Indo side. Uh, or yeah. the pop side near that border. It's almost always in what's called, I think it's central province. Um, right. Yeah. You don't usually find, uh, find ones from, from that area. Okay. Um, let me mark this real quick. Now I want to see the picture of the one on uh, iNaturalist. I'll send it in our, in our group message. Oh. <clears throat> um, I've got it pulled up right now. Do you? Yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's grainy. It's hard to see, but yeah, I'll see if I can send it to you, Nick. Um, uh, real quick, uh, I guess it's closing and then we'll, this will be all out of order. So we'll have to go back and, <laughs> and I'll, I'll fix it. No worries. Um, I guess it's closing. Uh, maybe we'll start with you, Nick. Like, uh, you know, what what do you got to say to the people about, uh, you know, poplin carpets? If they're sleeping on them or they're interested in them or, you know, uh, closing thoughts. I think they're probably one of the absolute best projects you could get into in terms of carpet python species for a few reasons. Uh, I wouldn't go as far as it, you know, unlimited, untapped potential, but they've got a fair bit of potential for selective breeding that's not been... I mean, you can pick any metric and you can steer carpet pythons towards that goal. They're very phenotypically plastic uh, in that way. Uh, and there's just not a lot of people, if you wanted doing it, if you wanted to make really super stripy ones, you could do that. If you wanted to make super banded ones, you could do that. If you want to make them light, you can do that. If you want to make them dark, you can do that. My advice is pick a single thing and go with that. If you, It's almost impossible, and I've tried you can't really selectively breed for color and pattern at the same time. You can get one, 
You might get, you won't get both. Pick a single thing and go for that. Um, and that, and pattern is generally easier to selectively steer for than uh, color is because pattern is apparent at hatching and color develops over time. But there's all this, there's this world of possibilities that not many people are dealing with. It's also the carpet that has the greatest amount of genetic diversity and that's not a huge problem. So you don't have those, to the extent that those are issues at all, you don't really have that concern with them. So another one in the plus column, they tend to be one of the mellower carpet pythons. Again, a total plus. Uh, they are without question the easiest carpet python to breed. They are so easy to breed, you can breed them almost on accident. They're that easy. Because they're the most equatorial of all the carpet pythons, they need the least amount of environmental stimulus to induce fertile mating. So they're just super easy to breed. And I don't know why, but the babies I find to be really easy. To, they're the easiest babies to get feeding. So it's just all across the board. You got a lot of projects you can do, a lot of room, wiggle room, a lot of uh, room to get creative with what you pair and what you do. You have genetic diversity you don't have in any other carpet. They're super easy to breed and the babies eat. So it's like, what more could you ask for? <laughs> really? Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 100%. All right. Um, ben, what's your thoughts? Or Riley, go ahead. I saw you unmuted your mic, so you go. <laughs> I mean, I I definitely am one of those those people who needs like the entire set of Morelia <laughs> as far as that's concerned. Yeah. So I'm not going to lie to myself and I'm not going to lie to the audience. But that being said, it, it, it's really difficult to pick a favorite, but they're probably my favorite group to work with. Uh, the most, most satisfying as far as instant gratification and long-term potential and just kind of, you know, just there's endless potential in my mind as far as what I can play with. And then, you know, I can dabble with uh, some exanic stuff and some granite stuff on the side and and kind of still scratch that itch of having it all. And I just I'm really excited for the future of Poplin carpets, whether or not they shut down uh, the ability for us to get imports or not, uh, you know, remains to be seen. But I think people should just be grabbing them up left and right. They're the best. I mean, not too big, not too small, really easy to keep, really easy to breed, great temperaments other than my babies, apparently. Um, and yeah, I just, they're awesome snakes and there's so much color palette and variety in there. And yeah, the you can't ex explain like the firing up and firing down thing until you've really experienced it. It's pretty special. So yeah, I, I love them. Okay, cool. Uh, ben? Yeah, I'm going to kind of piggyback on what you guys said, but like there's so many different looks. You could go in any direction that you want. Like there's more looks than we showed tonight. We showed all these different variations, and there's more than what we've kind of looked at tonight. And you can just kind of pick one thing and steer it in that direction. Um, Another thing we didn't even talk about is the red babies. You know, the, the ontogenic color change that they go through is really cool to watch. Um, and it's different than some of the other carpets, you know, going from that red baby or kind of coppery color to yellow or brown or, you know, it's just a really cool process to watch. Um, and then, yeah, the flaming up and down with the, the different colors that come through in that and 
having a different snake at different times of day is it's really cool cool to watch so uh yeah I, it i keep quite a few different carpets but they're the ones that i enjoy you know checking on the most because every time you look at them it's something different no, I was going to say that uh, um, now I lost my train of thought. Never mind. We'll just end it like there, <laughs> right there, and we'll call it. Uh, I appreciate you guys uh, coming and, uh, you know, doing the roundtable and whatnot. And um, as if people don't know, let's throw out your information. Riley, how do people get in touch with you? I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, Riley's Reptiles on Instagram, Riley Jimison on YouTube, and Patreon, and everything else. So pretty easy to find. Riley's reptiles.com. There you go. Ben? Uh, ben Nicholson on Facebook and Nicholson Herpeticulture on Instagram. Okay, cool. And Nick? Uh, I'm just Nick Mutton. InlandReptile.com uh, is my website. I have a business page on Facebook and my personal page. It's all kind of intermingled these days. I'm generally pretty easy to find. So. Yeah. Uh, I would say that if you got if the if the listeners out there are interested in uh, you know uh, getting into popping carpets, uh, these gentlemen right here, uh, you know I know Ben's not breeding yet, but he will very soon in the future. Um, but uh, uh, have a great group produce great animals. Uh, I know firsthand. I don't know from you, Ben, but I I can I can vouch that uh, that it'll be good. Um, but uh, yeah, so if you're if you're looking, if we converted you then you should go check these guys out see what they got going on. All right. Uh, and that's all we got. So see, it's so weird without Owen saying, thank you for listening. Good night. See, he had to sit this one out because he had, he hasn't been able to breed Poplin carpets yet. So, you know, Phil, we'll see if, he still Phil, hasn't. No, he still hasn't. They're the he's easiest gone. one. Uh, that's the easiest one it hurts his soul that he's bred white lips and you know mad hogs and uh you know all these crazy species that he's bred Uh and yet he's bred roughies you know but poplin carpets seem to uh, oh geez it's like that's that's crazy yeah that's crazy hopefully listen to the end (laughs) but i bet he didn't (laughs) (laughs) so be better right All right, Nick, uh, I know you got to jump off and go and whatnot, so I appreciate you uh, yeah, coming on and hanging. Right. Glad to do it again. Fun as always, guys. Yeah. All right. Must have.